Hello and welcome to Reading Tolkien. So in this, uh, I think, eighth episode, <coughs> I talked to Dr. Gergay Naj, who's a Tolkien scholar based in Hungary. He's written many interesting pieces uh, on Tolkien, and we discuss uh, one article in particular for the most part, although there is a couple of others that I mentioned. So the first article uh, that we discussed today is from the collection Tolkien the Medievalist, edited by Jane Chance, and this is called The Great Chain of Reading. And uh, <clears throat> so this is the main article uh, you'll hear me talk about uh, throughout, and um, it's available, I think, as an ebook if anyone is interested. Um, so you can read uh, you can read his essay in that collection, and of course as a, a paperback and whatnot as well. Uh, the second uh, paper that we talk about is from it's from the connection, co- collection um, Postmodern Reinterpretations of Fairy Tales, edited by Anna Kirchi, <clears throat> and uh, so the paper in that uh, in that collection, uh, which is a very large collection, there are many tales, not only about Tolkien but various other various other writers as well. The paper in that um, collection is called "Fictitious Fairy Stories: Writing a Fictitious Character in the Lord of the Rings" by Gurgay Naj, and that covers. Looks in depth at the sort of three chapters in the Two Towers and the Return of the King, where uh, Sam is sort of given prominence and has some of those sort of metafictional discussions with himself um, and also with the text, if you like. And finally, the third article that we look at is from um, a companion to J.R. Tolkien, um, published, um, I think it was in 2006. And it's Gurgai's article on the Silmarillion in that collection and his consideration of the significance of the Silmarillion as a text in Tolkien's corpus. And as you'll hear in this program, as it were, we get into that in tremendous detail. So um, so this conversation is probably the most sort of in-depth that I've yet had. It's quite, uh, in a sense, technical because Gurgai just, you know, we, we sort of just launch into some of his papers and... and uh, it sort of assumes that you know Tolkien's work fairly well, you know. So if you want to get the most out of this particular interview, uh, I'd recommend at least reading the paper from the Jane Chance collection. But otherwise, we we also do discuss sort of more general topics as well. Uh, it's nearly two hours of, of talk of discussion, and it was fascinating to have Gurgay Gurgay on. And uh, we also talk about the work of Michael Drought and Vladimir Berliak, who I have also interviewed. And so. Uh, I look forward to bringing this to you and presenting our conversation. So, again, thank you to Gurgai for coming on. Um, obviously, the time difference is <laughs> um, quite extreme, so it was nice to be able to do that. So, uh, enjoy, everyone. Thank you. So, uh, thanks, Gurgai, for, for joining, joining me today from the other side of the world. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad I was invited. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. I've I've long been interested in uh you know in 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 your papers that that you've written on Tolkien of which there are quite a, a number now. But today, as I would have mentioned in the introduction, we're looking at one in particular, which is called the Great Chain of Reading: Intertextual Relations and the Technique of Mythopoesis in the Turin Story. We're going to start there anyway, and then uh you know we'll, we'll we might uh, bring in a few other uh, articles and ideas along the way. So uh, I have a few questions, I suppose, to start with. And just to begin with a general sort of, you know, a general sort of question, which I um, have tended to ask 
you know, a few of the people I've, I've interviewed so far, which is this. So, you know, obviously Tolkien studies has been, if we want to call it a field, it's been something that's, uh, I suppose, been engaged in by various critics and, and whatnot really since, well, at least since The Lord of the Rings was published and perhaps since The Hobbit was published. But where do you feel, where do you feel that, that the field is now? How do you think about the state of Tolkien studies, as it were, today? Well, um, generally speaking, I would say that I'm very content with it. There's a lot being written. There's a lot mm-hmm. uh, being talked about. There are, there are actual academic conferences where people uh, come together and talk about Tolkien and read papers and have questions and have um, roundtable discussions and um, all of that uh, I see will be kept up by the uh, by the Amazon series that are supposed that is supposed to come mm-hmm. on. I don't know when. So um, what I see is that, the, that there's an activity. There are there are books published. There are um, there are periodicals. Tolkien studies have, has been going for nearly twenty years now, which is a huge thing. Uh, there are new books, new monographs every year, new edited volumes. So it's, um, you could say it's booming as opposed to what we had before 2000 or something like that. Um, what I feel is that the field has become um, sort of respectable and um, that, um, that means that you don't have to you know, find excuses for yourself. Um, sure, if, you're, yeah. if you're writing about talking, which you had to do, back, <laughs> you know, 20, yeah. even just 20 years ago, when I first started uh, doing things with talking, uh, I, I certainly had to, you know, rationalize it uh, with saying that this is uh, this is something that uh, leads back to medieval studies, for example. Sure, uh, yeah. and you don't have to do that anymore, and that's a, that's a good thing. And also within the um, Within the field itself, it's not um, it's not just um, old-fashioned things. It's not just biography. It's not just a repeat, repetition of the you know the most popular bits of the letters all of the time. It's not just uh, it's not just good and evil in talking anymore. It's not just um, uh, the the Elvish language. The languages come first, and then the uh, then the stories. So it's <laughs> not it's not the old. Um, mm. Uh, topics anymore, just only. Uh, there are a lot of um, exciting new things like theoretical approaches, like um, like uh, talking and authority, which is um, which is very good. I saw um, calls for papers recently for I think it was the um, the, in the British Talking Studies um, seminar next summer. Mm. And that was uh, also about talking diversity, which is which is great. Yeah, I saw so, that too. Yeah. So th- there are new directions. There are new. There's a lot of noise, as in every field. Um, you know, relating to the films, the um, well, whatever. But but then, it's also um, the cultural context of the whole thing, right? So it's not just not just Tolkien's works as such. Uh, it's also the films. It's also the, the Lord of the Rings films, the Hobbit films. It's, it will be the Amazon series once that gets um, get started. It's um, sometimes it's even the fan base 
so fan activities, which is also a, a great thing because um, when they're studying things like fan fiction, uh, you can um, you can pretty much uh, look into the the primary cultural uh, effects that have that that the works have that the that Tolkien's works have, not the you know so so to speak the official. Uh, reception <laughs> by critics, by filmmakers, by, by you know published authors who, who declare him to be to have been uh, an influence, but you know actually people people on the ground, as you would say, the fans, <laughs> you know, what they are doing with it. So uh, and that's exciting. That's something that uh, that should be done. But on the other hand, um, I think we talked about this a few years ago in uh, the Leeds Medieval Conference, where I was in a in a roundtable discussion about something like this, where various talking studies going. And um, I, I mentioned there that I had sometimes the, the uh, impression that uh, exactly with um, you know, the people on the ground, the readers, the readership, uh, and to some extent, um, to some extent, the writers who, um, who, who are uh, carrying on with the genre, uh, Sometimes I have the feeling, the sense that the talking is well on his way to classific uh, to, to classicization, right? So everyone, everyone, uh, you know, says that yeah, of course, talking was great, and talking had the uh, had this founding fathership of the whole genre and whatnot. But um, that's what that, that's what classics are. Uh, you don't tweet you don't tweet him anymore. So there's there is a growing sense that talking is. Talking is important at the beginning of um, of a sort of um, development that we are that of which we are the uh, the pioneers today. But uh, he's sort of old fashioned. He's sort of um, you know it's not <laughs> not for this not for today's world anymore. And that's a, that's a sure sign of the classic, really. Yeah. Do you think that that's? I mean, I, I've discussed this point couple of times with previous guests and also mm -hmm. Vladimir Belyak, who, uh, who I did an interview with. I haven't, mm -hmm. haven't released that yet. But mm -hmm. um, do you think that's particularly pertinent in the case of the fantasy community? Because I still feel that in a, gen in a more general sense, Tolkien is fairly widely read. Uh, I mean, that's mm -hmm. my impression at least. Um, but, but, uh, but, but often I, I feel like fantasy people um, who are really invested in the genre and, and read, you know, every sort of recently released title often i feel that they look at tolkien that way as sort of an out, out of date classic that's just my impression yeah no uh, i i often feel that too uh, not that i'm very integrated into the, into the <laughs> fantasy community um i don't think i've read fantasy per se um mm. in a long time but, um, mm, but anyway, I'm not coming from uh, from that direction to talk in any way, so um, that, that's fine. But yeah, uh, but then e even this very classification process is interesting. I mean, how how does talking get to be to that get gets to that point really uh, when when people who um, respect him and who uh, consider him a very important figure in the uh, in the genre. But at the same time, consider that um, no, it's not it's not for today, right? <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that is an interesting sort of development. 
yeah, as, as I as I said, I, I feel like well, who knows what the Amazon show will um, mm-hmm. will do to that perception. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely feel that sort of sentiment as well. At least in the fantasy. I mean, I don't read too much fantasy either, but um, certainly talking to people who do, uh, there is that general sense that someone like um, George Martin or uh, mm-hmm. you know any of those other other writers who produce those big big tomes. Um, that they are the sort of cutting edge. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's true, but... <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what cutting edge means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then again, I'm, I'm not very very knowledgeable um, about what is happening right now in the, in the, in the fantasy genre. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so I guess um, moving on to the paper mm-hmm. that you've written, um, which I mentioned before, and... You know, I read this a while ago, um, and I know Michael Drought has talked about it uh, as sort of one of his favourite papers as well. Um, you know, I've, on rereading it just before this podcast, I was struck by, you know, how relevant, at least to me, I, I feel like it still isn't. That's very good. Thank yes. you. <laughs> no worries. Even though, as you said, I, I think it's nearly 20 years old. That's right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think it has a lot to offer. So I don't know if, you, if you'd feel comfortable with it. With sort of summarizing it a little bit, I mean, I know it's it's quite a complex argument that you put forward, but uh, yeah, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll try. And um, I think I'll start um, with a sort of a, a little background to that. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, I, I think I did write it exactly twenty years before uh, ago. In, right. Yeah. <laughs> in two thousand and one, uh, it, it was oh, okay. it was a paper. Uh, initially, it was uh, a talk, uh, a paper presented at the, uh, the very first year that Tolkien at Kalamazoo um, was um, organizing Tolkien sessions at the um, uh, International Medieval Congress in Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, Michigan I think. And um, that was in itself a um, big thing. There, there are Tolkien sessions now at the, uh, at the International Medieval Congress. It's something new, and uh, and I was um, I, I was a PhD student in Hungary, um, not connected to the field at all, really. I was on a, on the Mythopoeic Society uh, mailing list, so I knew people, uh, but nobody knew me. And um, further, even in the uh, the early two thousands in, in Hungary, it was difficult to study Tolkien, not only because of um, uh, academic rejection or academic uh, whatever, uh, frowning upon. But uh, because there was simply no materials to do so. I mean, you you had the the primary text, but um, uh, you didn't have, unless you bought them, uh, you didn't have the the History of um, Mm Middle-earth series. I mean, if you you look at uh, the paper, which, which I did too again uh, last night, and I noticed that, and, and I'm, uh, I, I guess a lot of other readers might have noticed it too, that uh, there are no references to the later uh, versions of the Turin story in the later History of Middle-earth volumes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which was because I simply didn't have them. Uh, there was no library in Hungary that held them. I, I'm not sure there is today. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so there, uh, you, I had to work with what I had, and I had these um, 
terrible uh, Valentine paperback editions of the uh, of the first, I think, five volumes of the history of Middle Earth, uh, which um, which was good because at least I had the text, but I, I, I had practically no um, secondary literature. Right, I had um, I had Shippy. Mm-hmm. By some miracle, that was um, that was right there in the uh, in the department library. In Seged, <laughs> again, I don't know how it got there, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and I had a few articles that, uh, again, what you can see in the notes of the paper is that I was very, as PhD students are, I was very desperate to document everything, right? To uh, to show that there there's, there's stuff that I know. Uh, there's stuff that I have read, and there are uh, there are some references to papers that have uh, that were available to me, like um, uh, Polish scholars, uh, Andrzej Wicke and Zgorzelski, um, I think was the other one. So uh, I think, um, thinking back, I think the um, the textual approach to uh, to Tolkien grew out partly of the necessity, right? I didn't have anything else. I had the, well, not mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I had the primary text. I had to do something with them. Uh, and um, and afterwards, when, when I actually went to Kalamazoo and read the paper and met people and talk, uh, talked with them about, about this, the argument and everything, and they were, uh, they were asking the same things. Why? Why didn't you read this? I, I couldn't have read that. There's just no way of. And then, and it was uh, it was uh, wonderful that after I, I remember the summer after I got back from that first Kalamazoo um, conference, there were packages of hard copy arriving. Uh, <laughs> everybody was sending me you know, off prints. Um, Books that they didn't need, or books that they had uh, in duplicates, things like that. Uh, I, I was very, very grateful um, to receive all that material, and that's uh, that's how a lot of the material that uh, ended up in the notes in the actual published paper uh, mm. came together. Still, right. I, yeah. I still had the PhD students um, urge to you know, just include everything. Yeah. So um, the thing is that. Um, what I was fascinated in the primary texts uh, of Tolkien by was um, the um, the relationships, the layers, mm. so to speak, the um, what would be called um, world building today. But after having read Shippy, uh, I was also fascinated by how that world building is uh, is kept textual. So I I, I thought I detected. Uh, the working of philology on another level, or in in, in different things, than mm-hmm. um, than Shippy writes about. Shippy does write about the this textual space that variants of a story um, create, or at least circumcise, um, circumscribe. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> in the uh, in the fictional world, and then. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, I I felt that um, that uh, the the textuality of um, of Tolkien's texts 
the sec what I call the secondary textuality. Uh, Tolkien explains that these texts are actually texts within the fictional world as well. I, I felt that, that that didn't receive, that wasn't receiving enough attention. And um, I was also working on Mallory uh, uh, because I, I, I wrote my MA thesis on Mallory uh, a year or two before that. And um, there too, and of course I took courses on, uh, on uh, Beowulf uh, and read a lot of, uh, of Beowulf criticism because I felt that was also connected to Tolkien, which it is, of course. And, um, and I was fascinated by how the versions that we, uh, that we have in the history of Middle-earth are not only there as a sort of working background, like, you know, older and superseded versions, but... Um, but can be can be um, integrated as part of the interpretation, and um, uh, and that's one, one of my conclusions. Really, I think in in, in the paper that um, that uh, a new, as I felt at that point, a new twenty years ago, a new uh, approach to Tolkien is one that does not only concentrate on the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit or even the Silmarillion, but uh, needs to needs to view the entire corpus as, as, as the Tolkien corpus. Of course, we can talk about the finished text, we can talk about the Lord of the Rings of Hobbit, even the Silmarillion, which is my, my personal favorite of, of basically all time. But we need, we need to take into account that there is a corpus. And um, I think um, the, uh, the great chain of reading, the article, became the germ of what I read, what I later did in my dissertation, uh, which is um, which is to uh, to examine the Silmarillion, the nineteen seventy seven Silmarillion, as um, sort of the, the top of the iceberg of uh, of the uh, <laughs> of the version. But anyway, back to back to try to summarize. <laughs> the That's right. Yeah. Is <clears throat> what the paper argues is that uh, talking. Uh, uses philology within the textual world as well. So when we talk about depth, the famous um, uh, quality of depth that, he, that his work is supposed to have, uh, this suggestion of, um, of the past and, um, and lots of different things that are not, uh, not talked about at that time, but nevertheless are there. Uh, what I proposed, I think, is um, that there is... Um, there is also a philological depth in, in Tolkien, which is um, which is strictly speaking, texts, right? Textual texts mm -hmm. uh, that he that he claims to be there in the fiction, and the textual relations that work uh, in, in that. So when uh, when Elrond, or when the narrator uh, in *The Lord of the Rings* refers to Turin. Uh, without any explanation of who he is, what he did, um, all, all that begets is a sense that he was a great hero, mm -hmm. um, and that's um, you know that that's fine. That um, <laughs> that could be a suggestion of of depth. I mean, I don't know George Martin does that the same does that all of the time. Refer to something that is there, and it's um, you know either turns out not to be there, or uh, I don't know. I haven't read that much. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. in Tolkien, most of these things are actually there somewhere. 
I mean, there's famously very few examples uh, of um, of these uh, offhand remarks, of these allusions that are contentless, that are not there. Mm-hmm. Turin is not one of these. So, um, so if you go back to the Silmarillion, uh, then you get the story. So then you uh, and, and immediately you get. Um, it's not just an explanation of of who Turin is, uh, but um, immediately you get the sense that. Um, those two mentions of him by Elrond and by the narrator are uh, appropriate or inappropriate. In some sense, for example, um, Elrond um, mentioning Turin as one of the elf friends, that's very ironic. Um, but anyway, and then, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, you, so you get, um, basically what you get is you get meanings for, uh, for an, an unmeaningful Previously unmeaningful units in the in the Lord of the Rings, if you if you read Turin's story in the Silmarillion, but that, it doesn't stop there, uh, right? So uh, because uh, the Silmarillion version claims to be uh, something, and it's uh, and you can you can start trolling through the through the versions um, looking for its original, right? So the uh, uh, and, and then you you come upon different kinds of texts like the uh, like the alliterative Hurin um, uh, that Tolkien wrote in the nineteen the twenties and started to rewrite and never got anywhere with at the first version. <laughs> but it's great. You know, what we have of it is great. And uh, furthermore, <laughs> what we have of it uh, can be actually seen to survive as far as the the actual Silmarillion uh, and the unfinished tales version. So. Uh, what I what I did in the uh, in that article, I think, is uh, a sort of systematic um, run through uh, of um, versions of one particular story, that, which was the Turin story in that example, and uh, to see how the um, how the different uh, texts of the corpus claim to be real, positioned within the textual world and. Uh, Claim to uh, relate to each other, because I thought uh, that um, the this network, this um, the system of connections that uh, not only the stories but the texts claim between themselves, it is one of the one of the prime uh, locations that Tolkien, you know, makes that um, philological depth work, and mm-hmm. I think that. Um, that that's a valid thing even today. You sort of make a distinction in your paper, which I thought was really fascinating, between primary world philology and secondary world philology. And you make this uh, really interesting observation or claim, which is that uh, talking about, for example, the Turin story, we have, as you've mentioned, the Silmarillion version, and we, we have the Unfinished Tales version, which is more or less equivalent to the Children of Hurin. Book, exactly. Book. Uh, I was going to say that by today mm. we have the Children of Turin, which is yeah. Yeah. well, at least one text from beginning to end. Yeah, which which is probably actually my, my favorite of Tolkien's books, even though it's slightly constructed out of out of, out of, out of the notes, as it were. But um, yeah, and, and you make this claim that that we could, you know, that while we couldn't we couldn't reconstruct or we wouldn't be able to reconstruct sort of a Tolkienian 
original story, as it were, or original poetic uh, treatment of the story. But we could, in some sense, recreate uh, fragments of uh, of a sort of a secondary world or a, sure. a secondary zoological um, yeah. well, well, that's, uh, base text. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's right. But that's. Um, that's, uh, I, I think, a good illustration of, of how primary and secondary philology are different because in primary philology, we don't have problems very much, right? These are all Tolkien's work. He wrote them. Um, where we have problems is the, is the 1977 Silmarillion. Uh, hmm. How far, you know, the, the usual, um, usual questions about that. But uh, in primary philology, we don't have much um much of a problematic um, conundrum or something. Uh, we have Christopher Christopher Tolkien documented rather well the um, no he, he he did the datings he did the, uh, the collations he uh, read the manuscripts and so on. That's uh, pretty clear. Um, but and this was um, my point about. Um, the philological depth is that there is such a thing as secondary philology. Uh, there are texts in the in, in the fictional world that are related to each other in in this way and that. They have authors, they have editors, translators, which is um, you know uh, all of all of what that um, suggests. That's part of the fiction too. That's part of Middle Earth, mm-hmm. and that, that's worth building. Right? It's not just the story, it's, just, it's, it's also how stories get handed on, uh, how stories get handled. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's also part of Tolkien's fiction, and that's something I have never seen in any other, um, any other uh, fantasy author. Well, I mean, I think for me at any rate, you know, that, that's what continues to make Tolkien sort of feel uh, fairly unique, Um even in the you know even in the context where we have you know obviously now many writers of fantasy, I, I think um, the world building tends to be focused in the kind of literal aspects of you know whatever it is you're describing, as opposed to the sort of the building a, a sense of a textual tradition, you know relationships between texts. I suppose I'm interested. I'm interested in asking you, and I asked Dennis Dennis Wise about this, who's sort of written about similar similar issues. If we if we think about Tolkien's text, you know. At, as part of a textual tradition, including, of course, the Silmarillion. What does that mean on a kind of semantic level, do you think, or a um, on the level of, <laughs> to use a hideous philosophical term, to, on the level of ontology? Um, you know, as, as readers, do we approach the Silmarillion, for example, the creation story as a literal event, or do we understand this, or, or do we understand that as a, you know, a, a kind of a, an element in this tradition that in the story world has has developed um, and that we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't treat as a kind of literal event. There's meaning for the, for the characters, but not necessarily for readers in a, in a kind of mm-hmm. direct or literal sense. Well, for example, with the, with the creation and basically everything that happened before the, uh, before the baller came to Middle Earth and the Silveria, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's always, um, it's always a question of authenticity. And that's also mm-hmm. something that the, you know, the different textual layers and provenances uh, problematize. Where does all of this information come from? Right? Because yeah, yeah. In, in the later, in the Quintus Tilmerillion, for example, you can you can very neatly um, differentiate between um, material that comes from the Noldor, material that comes from <laughs> the Sindar, and things like that. Uh, yeah. And then 
there is um, basically nothing but the the valor to authenticate to authenticate the um, the creation story, which is fine, which is absolutely fine. Uh, the valor are actually characters in the, uh, yeah, in the yeah. story. They you know at the, some of the elves met meet them. They um, they intervene, so we, we can we can um, consider them as um, as authentic sources. Mm-hmm. How the you know how the elves record that is another question. But uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was uh, I, I think I was always more concerned with uh, something else on the uh, with the same sort of ontological question. Uh, which is um, the, the question of the, um, the free will of men, right? Because um, that part, you know, when, when Iluvatar explains how uh, men are going to be free from the uh, from the music, right? Mm. That is a, that is a part that can have no authentication, right? That's something that happens in uh, outside of Arda, outside of Middle Earth. Um, mm. In the halls of Iluvatar, after the Valar had already departed to Middle Earth, so who is you know who, who is uh, telling that? How does he or she know that? That's um, that's uh, and that's very important because a lot of critics, for example, are basing their uh, their accounts of uh, of Manish free will versus Elvish no free will or whatever yeah. Yeah. Uh, on that, and that's not, um, <laughs> That's not. That cannot be an authentic um, whatever. Yeah. Authentic yeah. record. So, um, so, I would say that um, what this what this shows is that Tolkien is uh, very aware of um, of how the the provenance of stories mm-hmm. works. Right, because yeah. for example, with the with the creation story, that there's a clear line of descent from um, from Iluvatar to the Valar to the uh, to the elves and so on. Uh, in yeah. in the other case, with the, with the, the theological explanation of Manish free will, there's no such clear um, provenance. So uh, one of them is that the creation story can be seen as um, as authentic. Because it's descended from an authentic source, and the other one uh, is problematic, mm-hmm. which, is, which is interesting. I think uh, what what he's doing, maybe he wasn't um, thinking of it in, in these terms. But then he might have, he must have known. I mean, talking, he must have been aware that um, that um, you can't authenticate what happened to Iluvatar and his. Uh, and the remaining Arnor um, in, in Middle Earth, within the Middle Earth context, because there was simply no connection. Yeah, who, yeah. Who was, to, uh, who was to tell the story? Yeah, and uh, uh, perhaps a related point um, that I've often thought about in the Silmarillion is, is this notion of um, the gift of death as a kind of theological concept um, that's sort of repeatedly... Thing. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, sort of repeatedly really emphasised. Yeah. And um, I don't know at least for me when I, you know if I read to come back to the Turin story again, um, when I read that that story, which is of course you know inspired by um, 
at least in part based on sort of uh, non-Christian um, mm-hmm. uh, Finnish mythology, um, or at least, you know, as reconstructed in the 19th century. Um, it, it, the narrative of that story tends to, well, at least, as I say, at least for me, it tends to undermine that whole theological concept. You know, I can't, I can't really see that that provides con- a consolatory note to the to the story. So I'm sort of, I'm wondering, given that Tolkien obviously has so many different influences, you know, and I've heard this put before by by some some readers on online and in forums and whatnot. Are there elements of of uh, his story, for example, the the Turin story that that are sort of incongruent with one another and that don't sort of neatly fit together into a complete theological vision, you know, as some people would suggest. Um, and that, that might also relate to the kind of philological, um, you know, the, the sort of different texts that, that you, you, you talk about as well. Yeah, and it's not only different texts for different traditions. There are, uh, mm, mm, you know, in, mm. in the 1977th Sumerian, you can you can very easily uh, differentiate between that no Sindarin tradition, Northern tradition, Danish mm. uh, yeah. tradition, <laughs> and also. Uh, so, um, for example, uh, the Turin story is um, the, the Turin story is supposed to have been written by a man, dear Harvard, mm-hmm. right? Mm. So, um, how did it end up in the Silmarillion? It went the Silmarillion in the first place because uh, mm. the chapter on Turin says that this is the this is an abbreviated version of the Robber's Lace. So uh, what we have is the story of a man written by, um, or composed by a Manish author and then integrated into the, uh, the great big history of the elves, right? Mm. So, uh, it, it's also the cultural, cultural context, and uh, it doesn't have to be theologically uh, coherent. Right, mm. there, there are differences. There are, there are theological differences between Olderin and um, and yeah. um, <laughs> sorry, who are the elves that stayed in you know uh, the yeah 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 <laughs> anyway you know <laughs> uh, those those of those elves who who actually um, stayed in contact with the Valar because they stayed in uh, in Amman. and then there were the Noldor who came back from there. There were the Cinder who never went there. And, you know, the, all, all that they had um, to, to um, authenticate the, the existence of the Valar was King, uh, King Thingol, who, who had been part of the original uh, embassy to the Valar, right? So uh, there are uh, different theological stances in the Silmarillion that you can detect. Uh, yeah. A very specific Sindarin point, a very specific uh, Noldorin point. So it's not it's not so surprising that you that you have a very specific um, man managed uh, point of view. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. That that interests me because, of course, it's. I don't, it seems to me common that um, Tolkien's fiction is regarded fairly singularly um, as as sort of inspiring or speaking to a particular. Uh, theological or phil- philosophical point of view or sentiment, um, and that's a reading. I don't know. I've always naturally resisted, you know, and and not just from the from the beginning of my own reading, not 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 necessarily um, consciously, but just in the way that I've read the text, you know, as a child and growing up. It's always been something that more than one sort of speaks with more than one voice, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah, to well, put it that that's way, that's a very good metaphor for all of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think your, you know, obviously, I think your um, your papers 
go a long way towards explicating exactly why that is. Um, but just, you know, obviously your paper uh, has a focus on, on the, the Turin story and the various texts that make that up. So just to draw that um, back to the, the Lord of the Rings, um, you've talked about or you've mentioned that, for example, there is an allusion to Turin um, in uh, in the in the Fellowship of the Ring, in the Council of Elrond chapter, where um, Turin is, yeah, is, is grouped with Hurin, his father, um, who is a more, we might say, traditional heroic figure, <laughs> and um, and Baron, of course, who is also another traditional heroic figure. And you know, for those who have read the Children of Hurin or have read the Silmarillion and know the story, you'll know that Turin um, has quite a different story um, to these. Although Hurin is, is, of course, in the end, a tragic, really tragic That's character right. as well. That's right. So uh, it's uh, it, it's funny, really. I, I think mm. it's it so, somewhat funny because uh, Elrond is making like uh, it's a big ceremonial thing, uh, mm. comparing Frodo to uh, to sonorous names that uh, you know, even sound like heroes, and and, and calling them elf friends. And, um, and if you know the story, well, Turin was probably the least elf-friendly of these. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess Hurin and Beren too would have had problems with elves in their lives at, at points of their stories. So, but, but you know, what what counts is the um, is is how these um, heroes, and that's again a, a sort of function of how Tolkien uh, represents. Uh, the workings mm. of tradition. What counts eventually is uh, is whether these figures um, fit the bill, so to speak, at that point, right? Mm. Doing some great service to the elves and the mm. world, right? I mean, Turin, despite of all the uh, all the problems that he had with elves, after all, did kill Glorog, which is uh, which is a huge service to everyone, not just not, not just the elves. <laughs> That's true. After he had ruined Nagathron, which was a huge disservice to the elves, um, <laughs> Hurin, uh, Hurin saved King uh, King Turgon, and that was uh, probably his, uh, and, uh, and never betrayed him, which was uh, which was his great big service to the elves. Beren, uh, of course, got the still got one the one Silmaril back from from Morgoth, which was his emblematic uh, service to the elves. So. Um, Whatever other minor conflicts, minor or major conflicts, uh, these figures had, and all, all three are, uh, are are human, are men, right? That that, mm-hmm. that everyone mentions. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's no point being an elf friend if you're an elf. If you're not an elf, no, if you're an elf, anyway. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> uh, so, what what works and how tradition works to, you know, to to subtly. Um, Reference Mike Drought's uh, book. How to <laughs> it is uh, is to uh, is to find the connecting points at uh, at any particular point, and you know to 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 bring in whatever feels, fits the bill, so to speak, whatever um, has the function there. And if you want to uh, if you want to reference the Turin story uh, in some more detail, then you can do that later on, like. Um, like the narrator does in uh, in the uh, in the seminar Mordor chapters. Yes, yep. Um, and this is where um, 
we might mention uh, your recent or more recent paper um, in which you talk about um, uh, the SAM chapters um, mm-hmm. and SAMs. Well, you don't only talk about Turin, but you also talk about Mytheros and um, and Luthien as well in there. Uh, so there's the better, better Luthien story in there too. Mm. Yeah, and of course the Beren and well, I've always thought that the the Beren, obviously the Beren and Luthien text is sort of developed. We hear on Weathertop, Aragorn sort of gives the sort of poetic uh, or a fragment of, of the sort of poetic story, and then. It, at later points in the narrative, as, as you've, you, as you know, uh, you know, the story is invoked in various other ways. Um, and of it, there, there are fairly obvious parallels, um, between the Lord of the Rings and the, uh, the Baron and Luthien story. Um, and it's sort of heroic romance and whatever. Um, but I am, I am sort of interested in this, in how Turin is evoked because, um, you use this term in, in, um, the Great Chain of Reading article, I think, I think it is um, this idea of a universal tradition, um, and you know, you write that um, to, to quote your article, you, you say that this typological sh- scheme is pertinent to both primary and textual worlds. Um, so that is our world, and then obviously the, the, the secondary world, as Tolkien might say, as far as we handle the Lord of the Rings as a later account um, of the happenings at the end of the Third Age, the narrator slash persona. Um, uh, th- then presents uh, events with an eye on on this universal tradition. So, um, yeah, t- again, to come back to that sort of um, uh, that evocate or that 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 evocation by El- Elrond of sort of Turin in that company as well. Um, I suppose I-, I would ask this: so, does this sort of universal tradition, especially as it is focused? Um, in the text of the Lord of the Rings, um, do, does it produce a sort of biased picture of the older days, that, that is the first age? Um, for, for example, the text is heavily imbued with nostalgic feeling. Um, again, this is sort of a, an argument from, from Michael Drought, which I sort of agree with. Uh, you know, are, are we getting a, a rose-tinted picture of, of the older days? Um, do you think, and is this deliberate on Tolkien's part? Um, you, you've mentioned that it's kind of ironic that that Elrond mentions Turin in, the, in this part. Um, you know, for the obvious reasons that that he's not real. You know, he was sort of against the elves, as it were, um, at least for part of his his mm-hmm. career. Um, but then, how do we understand the complex relationship between um, the Silmarillion view of the elder days, which, at least to my mind, is kind of a tragic? vision and then the lord of the rings has a kind of lost golden age and and we see this again in the lothlorian chapters where yeah. you know um the elder days are presented as this um idol almost you know i think that even elrond um would say that um the first stage was no golden age um, mm-hmm. it had it's uh, exactly because of what we said in the Silmarillion, because it was tragic yeah. um yeah yeah it was um uh, if there ever was a golden age, the golden age was the you know the, the very early first age, which mm-hmm. nobody mm. seems to feel nostalgic for, right? So no, <laughs> That's true. We yeah. don't yeah. hear elves uh, sighing, or oh, oh, if oh, if only we could go back to Quivine or something. Mm-hmm. Um, if ever there was a golden age, um, I think that must have been the early second age, 
when uh, when Sauron was not uh, yet very active, and uh, and Numenor was recently set up, and um, everything was fine and dandy. But um, <laughs> I don't think that uh, I don't think that Elrond um, is constructing the first age at that point um, as a lost golden mm. age. He, I mean, he he explicitly say, says that uh, for, for three ages of the world we have been fighting the long uh, defeat, and um, mm-hmm. and he and, and the narrative that Gandalf um, told Frodo and the narrative that comes out of um, the uh, Council of Elrond, they all, well, to me at least, they all um, construct the first page, the earlier ages of the, of the world, as something different, but not mm-hmm. necessarily something better. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you can say it was um, it was bigger, but not necessarily better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Bigger in the sense yeah. that you didn't, you know, Sauron so then was the least to be over it. Uh, because Sauron had the boss at that time, just imagine that. Uh, mm. So uh, when when Tolkien, but Tolkien's various narrators and various speakers and various author figures talk about the first age, um, I think I think it's not so much um, with the nostalgia that they do. It's with, um, what we would call a historical awareness. Right, uh, mm-hmm. awareness of historical distance, and sometimes you can even you can even detect that they are aware that uh, that the distance is actually distorting the image. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. I guess I, I guess that's where I was getting at. I suppose, um, and perhaps perhaps the Lord of the Rings does not do this, but. Um, I suppose when I when I read when I read the book, I, I tend to feel like there is perhaps a little bit of distortion going on uh, with regards to the the elder days, and and perhaps it's not really Elrond who 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 is guilty of this, oh, yeah. um, because as you mentioned, he does he does admit the sort of um, you know the defeats and the fruitless victories, um, as you say, but there is a sense that. Uh, you know, in the, in the chapter, the Council of Elrond, for example, there's no sense that the the Noldor are at fault, uh, for example, for the for the war that obviously engulfs Middle Earth, or at least part of it, in the first stage. There's a sense that really the only antagonists are sort of Sauron and then and the elves who are morally upright. But this this, at least to me, seems to, um, uh, as, as you say, kind of distort. The picture of what actually happened, at least according to the Silmarillion. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know if Tolkien was was really was thinking sort of on on that level, or, or if he was just sort of in the midst of writing the story. But, but it seems to me at least that there is a um, that, that you could make the argument at least that that the uh, you know the, the, the Lord of the Rings um, gives a, a particular vision of the past. Um, which you know we might compare to other sort of um, works of mythopoesis, you know, um, and that is perhaps not not even authentic, or not completely authentic in the the secondary world or in the story world. I don't. I, yeah, well, it, it's just a thought. <laughs> well, one, one thing is that I don't think we can give just one uh, picture of the past, right? Because there, there's Elrond, um, mm, mm. that we have spoken, that we have spoken 
around. But um, you know, like there's Denethor, uh, and in in Goldor, and Denethor is the real um, you know nostalgic version of the character. I mean, he looks back at uh, he explicitly says that um, if he can't have things as they had been in the uh, in the age of his fathers, then he he would have nothing. Right. Mm. That um, <laughs> if, if only more. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so uh, the the point is, I think that that Tolkien, um, one of Tolkien's main themes, is the mm-hmm. past, right? Mm-hmm. The relation, how the past is there, how we use the past, how different cultures, different people, different communities use the past, how different personages use the past, how um, mm-hmm. how different personages from the past, like Turin, are used. Uh, in telling our own stories. So um, I think that there is basically a um, sort of continuum, a sort of spectrum of looking at the past in Tolkien, not only in the whole corpus where, where you have the you know the textual connections, uh, but also in the Lord of the Rings where you have, you know, when, when this nostalgia or this looking back to the past in certain ways, that's only just part of the story. It doesn't necessarily imply textual uh, Connections, so uh, but it's nevertheless uh, it's um, it's one of Tolkien's main themes: the past and how how we preserve it, how we look at it, how we handle it, how, how we make meaning out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I suppose just to um, move briefly away from from the Lord of the Rings specifically, and back to the Silmarillion. Um, in in another article. Um, that you've that you've written, I think it's for the, um, uh, the companion, a companion to J.R. Tolkien. Uh, I think it's a Blackwell text yeah. Yeah. Um, on the Silmarillion. Um, your chapter was on the Silmarillion, um, and I know I haven't <laughs> I haven't linked this in the the notes, but that's all right. It's um, just a quick question about it. Um, you know, you, you sort of make the the argument that the Silmarillion. That is the published text that we have. Is um, uh, if not the best, then it then it's more or less accords with Tolkien's intentions. Um, and this is sort of interesting to me because, um, you know, as you've noted there, uh, plenty of scholars have sort of argued that um, that were Tolkien. Or yeah, had Tolkien lived sort of you know beyond 1973, that he might have uh, he might have finished finished it in in in, in another way, um, which is undoubtedly true. But 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 at least um, at the time that he wrote the Lord of the Rings, I, I think your the sense of the article is that this is the kind of Silmarillion that he might have produced, you know, had he had he finished it. So how does that sit with the sense that the Silmarillion? Or the legendarium is a collection of these disparate texts, because I know other scholars have suggested that, for example, uh, Vladimir Berliak has suggested that this tendency in Tolkien's scholarship or Tolkien studies to think about Tolkien's legendarium as a kind of archive or whatnot of a sort of, in, in some sense, equally authentic stories is misplaced, and that we should consider a lot of those texts, you know, drafts and, and whatnot, um, as we might say, for another author like James Joyce. So is, is there a kind of tension there between thinking about the Silmarillion as a kind of, that is the published text, as a kind of, I don't know, as a kind of authentic 
text, but then also thinking about the rest of the history of Middle Earth text, for example, as also sort of equally somehow authentic. <laughs> um, it seems to me that there's a tension there in Tolkien studies that, yeah, people disagree about. Yeah, um, that partly, I think, comes from um, the question of authentic means in this sense. Because, mm, yeah. you when know, <laughs> uh, we think about James Joyce and when we think about 20th century authors, you know, what an authentic text is, is a text written by the by this particular author, finished and um, mm. and published to his or her heart's content. And, um, yeah. and in, um, in um, for example, medieval manuscript textuality, there's no fixity like that. There's no mm. Um, mm. no finalizing like that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. If, if if you look at any two manuscripts of um, of the same work, as as we would say, you won't find you you won't find that they are um, they are identical. They're always yeah. different. And yeah. I think um, one thing that Tolkien's um, whole corpus uh, problematizes for us is exactly this: the authenticity. Mm-hmm. What, what it means in the 20th century um, to have an authentic text. And Tolkien is very often um, labeled as a, a sort of um, misplaced medieval writer in, <laughs> in the 20th century, which is also misleading. I mean, he wasn't medieval writer, as a lot of people have, have shown very uh, conclusively. Lord of the Rings, as you know, special, is a very, very 20th century book mm. in, in both of its subject matter and its main concerns and its, uh, and, and its um, structure and language and style and all of that. So Tolkien is not just a, you know, um, someone who wishes it was possible still to write as a medieval author. What he is is um, is a philologist writing um, things, writing novels. <laughs> he's writing the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, uh, and writing his um, his pet universe when he's writing the, uh, the Silmarillion texts, where he knows mm. that you know he can uh, he can develop those themes uh, that he uh, that his heart is most set on, right? Mm. The version. The, the transmissions, the languages, and their interactions. So um, when we look at the 1977 Silver uh, and um, argue that it's not an authentic Tolkien text, uh, we are both right and wrong, I think, because <laughs> well, definitely it's not a text that Tolkien himself had uh, finished and published to his heart's contents. It has, there's no question about that. Awesome. Uh, and this is, I think, uh, the argument that I make. Uh, it is authentic in spirit because mm. it is exactly what he imagined Silmarillion to be, right? Mm. Mm. Uh, Christopher Tolkien in the foreword um, uh, writes about how his father came to see the Silmarillion, um, you know, the, not, the, not the book, but the, uh, the work. Uh, the Silmarillion mm. as, um, as a compilation together from sources of great diversity and so on. Uh, and you know, this is exactly what happens. This is exactly <laughs> yeah. what the 1977 similar is. Uh, put together by Christopher Tolkien, that's one thing, uh, but 
from the uh, from from Tolkien's own manuscripts, Tolkien's own versions, and um, well, frankly, uh, in a number of places, you know, think, think about those late um, doubts that Tolkien had about the uh, the shape of the world, for example, the, yeah, the flat yeah, world, yeah. the round world thing, and he he started out that uh, the 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 astronomically knowledgeable elves could ever have thought that the world was flat. Mm. But, mm. you know, had, had he acted on that thought and transformed the whole of the, the first age into a round world uh, thing, what would that have been like, right? Yeah. The making, <laughs> making round of the world by Ilúvatar, uh, that's, uh, that's a wonderful image, that's a wonderful mythological theme, a theme mm. and that um, well, uh, if that was lost, that would have uh, impacted the whole of what had come before that uh, in, in, in a very detrimental way, I think. So had Tolkien had time uh, to, to finish it to his heart's content, he might have ruined it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think that um, this is, in fact, the best thing that we have. Um, mm. yeah. it, it, it fits into, you know, it fits into the, the conceptual slot that Tolkien uh, mm. undoubtedly had for the Silmarillion, not only before, mm. but mm. Toward, very much towards the end of his life. And um, it has the added advantage, which I don't know uh, uh, whether I put into that uh, into the article, but it has the added advantage that in this way Christopher Tolkien uh, writes himself into Bilbo's functional place within mm. the fictional world, which is, I think, yeah. uh, very, very nice for yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lovely synthesis, isn't it, of the primary and secondary philology, <laughs> as you might put it. Yeah, um, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and and you say in the uh, the first article again that we discussed um, that we cannot accept the Silmarillion, that is the the published book, as as a context. Um, so again, you know, you're sort of emphasizing the um, the Silmarillion as an outcome. Um, of a historical tradition in the story world. And as you say, that's kind of mirrored in the, the real world as well, um, in Christopher's work. That's right. That's, that, that's what came out of my consideration, that um, we can't only focus on the, um, on the finished text. It's not just the Lord of the Rings, not just the Hobbit, and not even just the Silverian, because the Silverian itself has, has uh, contextualized. And, yeah. You know, conclusion was that it's contextualized in both primary and secondary uh, worlds. Mm, that's a rather beautiful sort of uh, note. <laughs> so uh, I've mentioned, you know, we, we've sort of been going back and forth between the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion. Um, obviously, there, there's something in the metafictional conceit, although I don't really like that word, that is presented in the Lord of the Rings that um, that, is, that is the, the, the notion of the Red Book of Westmarch as yeah conscientious readers will will know about that encompasses both the lord of the rings but also the silmarillion as well as you say in the kind of in the in the um the translations of bilbo from the the elvish as it were what's and you you touch on this again in your, your recent article uh looking at the sam chapters in the lord of the rings in the two towers and the return of the king what's your i suppose 
your take on the whole Red Book idea because uh, Verlin Flieger and other scholars have had very different sort of uh, takes on, on the whole metafictional conceit as presented in the prologue to the Lord of the Rings and in the, the appendices. And I've mentioned a couple of times that I've, I've, I've read, uh, I've interviewed Vladimir Berliak, who published an article uh, 10 years ago now in Tolkien Studies, which, you know, which was sort of argued that the Red Book idea needs to be taken very seriously and it's a kind of central idea or at least as a, it's, it's central to any kind of uh, thorough reading of, of the book of The Lord of the Rings, but also the Silmarillion as well. It was lovely to interview him about that and get his ideas, but, but how, how do you think about that? Well, both in general, the, the whole Red Book of Westmarch idea as presented by Tolkien, but then also Vladimir Berliak's kind of argument as to the centrality of, of that as well. Well, I think... Um... I think I, uh, I tend to keep to the idea that the Red Book as the uh, as the source, as the fictionalized source, is um, mm-hmm. is completely tenable. I mean, neither right. neither Brilliacs or, or Berlin Flieger's um, counter arguments to their, uh, you know, <laughs> like uh, how, how does Frodo write about things, where, uh, write about events where he wasn't there? Come on, um, <laughs> but, uh, these are not problems. Right? These are not mm. really problems. Uh, what are uh, what is important, and this is um, this is uh, something that all of these uh, handlings of the red book, mm. problematizations of the red book, uh, bring out is the um, is the uh, looking at looking at the gap. Right? It's not mm. It, mm. you have to look, you have to mind the gap. <laughs> uh, within uh, between the fictional world, the fictionalized source, and you know what we have, because um, you know you could you could uh, even suppose there's a third different uh, level, and that's uh, that's where you are, uh, that's where you are, the audience looking at the translation of the of the rainbow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, the the thing bridging this gap. Between secondary and primary, between the, the textual world, between Middle Earth and our own world, where we are the readers, I think bridging that gap is the conceit, as you said, of the of the translator. Mm. Mm. Right? And um, and that is uh, that is in some sense parallel between uh, there is a, in some sense parallel between what the translator does and what the compiler does in with the Red Book. And uh, all of the concerns I, I think uh, that are raised about the Red Book are really concerns of the gap, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Within, within the textual world, I don't see any problem with um, with the Red Book as the ultimate source, right? Mm. Uh, Bilbo could have could have gathered all of that information. Frodo could have gathered all of that information. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dialogues. Come on. Uh, Wrote <laughs> dialogues, Xenophon wrote dialogues. Um, no, no problem at all, right? Um, it might be problematic uh, if, as Brilliant does, uh, we are looking at uh, these texts with um, preconceptions about how um, how how literature works and what literature is. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Because you can say that um, 
there's that is Hobbit Frodo, and uh, he used to pose that he's um, writing the narrative of his own uh, adventures in this kind of language, in this kind of style. Mm. Right? It doesn't look like um, it doesn't look like medieval chronicle. It doesn't look like um, it doesn't look like anything but twentieth century novel. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is basically what Brilliac's argument is um, turns on, I think, is that uh, this cannot the, Frodo would not write a 20th century novel. Of course, Frodo would not write a 20th century novel. We have no idea what Frodo would do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, uh, on top of all of that, what do we expect from Frodo to write? Mm. Right. What, mm. what do we, what do we expect? Uh, what do we expect uh, a Hobbit's writing to be like? Because that's, I think, the point of what Tolkien does here uh, in in attributing the Hobbit to Bilbo and attributing the Lord of the Rings to Frodo. Uh, mm. He's um, he's uh, and it's, I, I, I think it must have been great fun for him uh, having <laughs> for, you know having for twenty years or fifteen years written. Mm. Um, very elevated, very high style uh, things, mm. poems even in the alliterative meter and whatever, and uh, and um, coming up with the idea of Hobbit and um, and try to work out how um, how Hobbit would write. Uh, so um, I don't see any problem with uh, with that um, with Hobbit's text being different from. Uh, from the high style and the elevated and, and the ceremonial, but that is of course um, that is of course also a, a function of the of the fiction of the translator, right? So be, yeah, yeah. because you know the, the usual points like the, uh, like the, the dragon coming down like uh, like a steam engine, uh, <laughs> yeah, in in the Lord of the Rings. That's that's something we usually um, attribute to the translator, don't we? So, mm-hmm. so uh, there's also there's also that, and all of that, just like metafictional devices usually do, they uh, they cluster around the gap, right? They mm. cluster around the um, that inevitable um, change from the fiction to the non-fiction, right? Uh, the world of fiction to the world of the uh, world of the uh, the audience, because it's uh, it's obviously and emphatically not the same. And that is, I think, what, what the fantastic is about. That yeah. gap and that um, you know uh, that making readers aware of the gap. So, in as, as the Russian formalist said, it's uh, it's the bearing of the device, right? Pointing attention to the uh, to the artificiality. Yeah. So I, I think I was going to ask um, in regards to confirm my notes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so. so Tolkien's metafiction. Um, again, I, I know I keep coming back to Vladimir Berlioz <laughs> and his, his his arguments, but um, you know, in, in his paper, he sort of he sort of posits the notion that we are neither, as readers in the Lord of the Rings of the Lord of the Rings, we are we, we're neither completely, as it were, compelled to secondary belief about the world, but nor are we completely sort of alienated from the world. Instead, it's sort of some somewhere in the middle, which sort of he suggests creates the dominant uh, emotional resonance, I suppose, mm-hmm. of, of the work. Um, do you see some merit in, in that idea, or do, or do you think that the metafictional apparatus is kind of um, 
devoted entirely in some some way towards, you know, as Tolkien himself might have put it, compelling um, secondary belief, uh, complete immersion in the world. I think that uh, that idea of Rudyard's is completely tenable because um, mm-hmm. my own work uh, is um, is about. Um, Looking at versions and looking at this textual tangle, the, the textual corpus of uh, of Tolkien, both in secondary and primary senses, um, and um, and trying to to look at what um, what functions Tolkien creates as attached to these versions. So there's a, there's a lot of different author authorial sense authorial senses, right, and authorial actions that that, that uh, Tolkien suggests in. Uh, in creating this uh, this textual provenance. But whenever an authorial stance is produced, an authorial action is produced in the fiction, there's always a corresponding um, audience produced for that, right? And um, and that's also part of what, a, what metafiction does, right? Make you aware not only of the creation of the of the fiction, but uh, but your own place in relation to that fiction, right? Uh, you can choose your you can choose your uh, your position, and and that's that, that's one of the effects of the very elaborate um, network of texts and authorial um, actions and textual transformations that uh, that the fiction includes. So uh, you can choose to um, to look at the Lord of the Rings as uh, some sort of uh, Fourth age philologist, right within the next <laughs> mm-hmm. door. Uh, mm-hmm. and this would have been something that Tolkien would have found, I think, uh, very, very entertaining. And um, but at the same time, as you can see from his letters, uh, he was very aware that, um, and of course, that's a fiction, right? So, as, as an audience, as a reader in the in, in the real world. Um, mm-hmm. You look at all of that from uh, from the outside, as it were, um, and um, that secondary belief that he was talking about. I think that's um, that's basically what he aimed at in uh, in making it so elaborate that there would be a position possible as a, as a fourth age fourth age philologist. Uh, you don't have to take it, but um, um, but you can, right? Sure. And, uh, and that, that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, fan relations to Tolkien's world, where you you know you you get completely immersed in the world and start speculating about different things, like whatever. Uh, <laughs> it, it's possible, but all of that is uh, is an effect. Of the of the whole complex, all of that is an effect of the metafiction, and um, when we as um, as critics, as real world critics this time of twentieth uh, century uh, fantastic literature and Tolkien in particular, um, when we look at it uh, from that position, that inside audience position is also part of the fiction, and it's part of what it means. It's part of what it um, explores about culture. So I think um, the um, the oscillation, the temptation to get into the world and uh, 
and look at it uh, and give it full secondary belief. That's part of the effect of the text. Tolkien would have been very happy to, uh, to see that, I think. And also, by the, um, by the metafictional devices that he very consciously uh, uses, um, he, um, he gives us a position from which to see how all of this works. And that also would have been, I think, uh, one of his um, one of his uh, main concerns, because I think what he was concerned with, as I said, was um, how we look at the past, how we use stories uh, to to make sense of the present. That's what you see in um, in Frodo writing Sam. Mm. Uh, so we, we use all of this to um, to make sense of who we are, where we are, what happened, what's happening to us. Um, so I think the um, the oscillation between these positions, what Brilliac calls that, that in-between position, uh, mm. is very relevant, is in fact very important to, uh, to, our, um, to our critical position about talking. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, that, that's, I think that's um, this interest in the metafictional... Um, element, especially of the Lord of the Rings, seems to be, um, uh, I suppose, gaining interest uh, in the scholarly community and in, in various people who are writing about it. So hopefully that will be something that um, is, is more, you know, is considered in, in greater depth um, going forward as well. Um, do you think, uh, do you think that you will sort of write more on Tolkien, um, I'm not sure <laughs> sort of what you're up to at the moment, but but um, I think I, I had sort of emailed you in the past, and you mentioned that your dissertation might become a book. Um, oh yeah, is that is that still going to happen, <laughs> or is oh, that sort of? I hope it. I, I hope it will one day. Um, mm-hmm. I still have a dissertation uh, written nearly ten years ago now. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. And and read nearly lost read nearly ten years ago now. Um, mm. So, um, well, that's uh, that's entirely a practical thing. If I yeah, get if, if I get enough time, um, <laughs> then I will. Uh, I'll be very happy to do it. But um, yeah, presently, I'm not getting enough time. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's. Um... I think so. Yeah. Well, I, I, I still hope I can make that. Um, <laughs> I, I want a big con- contribution to Tolkien studies. Hmm. No. Fair enough. That's um. You know, we, we've all yeah. We, <laughs> I've just uh, finished my my PhD as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, What's that in? What was that on? Um, nothing to do with Tolkien, but but archaeology, um, <laughs> Roman archaeology in um, in Egypt, but uh-huh. but. Um, the thought of turning that into a book is also quite daunting, so I don't know if that will happen anytime soon. Um, so I completely understand the, um, yeah, the uh, the huge, you know, the huge task that that, that would be. But um, nonetheless, I'm sure it would be it would be interesting. So I suppose um, just to to finish off here, I think we've covered you know um, quite a bit of ground. Uh, between sort of the Lord of the Rings and Silmarillion and, and metafictional readings and Tolkien studies more generally, you mentioned at the start that um, perhaps Tolkien studies is um, 
moving away from a defensive posture. And I was going to say, actually, that I was recently reading Tom Shippey's uh, Road to Middle-Earth, which is, of course, a great book. Um, and I think you reviewed the third edition, second, third edition? Yes, uh, third edition, yes. Third edition, yeah, that's right, uh, for Tolkien Studies, the journal, um, which was, again, a, a very nice review. But I, I, was, I was reading that the book again, and um, I was struck by just how, Frequently, he talks about, you know, this critic said that or this critic said this about Tolkien and this is wrong and this is, you know, um, this is ridiculous and this is not what Tolkien meant. And um, it did sound a bit anachronistic to me because, you know, I, I certainly feel that, uh, that, that, there, that, that there is perhaps some sense that um, that sort of posture is no longer necessary. It's a very happy development, isn't it? <laughs> so I, I don't know if there'll be a fourth edition of, of his book, but hopefully that that would perhaps you know pay less attention to um, mm-hmm. to, to a lot of those critic critical ideas. I, I, um, I don't think he will. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, don't he will. Uh, I don't don't think Tom Shippey is uh, is feeling the need right now. Yeah. He is very yeah. rightly feeling that he he has done uh, his bit, yeah. which is. Uh, which has been a huge bit. So um, yeah, yeah, no, that is completely, that is completely well deserved. <laughs> I did, I did read his recent book on on Vikings. I, I don't know if you've read that, but that was um, no, but I know about it. It's on a long, long list. That's, that's yeah, <laughs> I, I can say that it is, um, it is an excellent synthesis of um, of sort of textual readings and also archaeological data, which of course interests me. Um, so it's it's well worth a read, but but um, no, that that's fair enough. He has done a tremendous a tremendous amount for for Tolkien studies, but um, I suppose my, my my point was that you know read, reading a book like that, uh, obviously that third edition was published in two thousand and three or so, um, and uh, even as the the Peter Jackson films came out, there was still that sort of. Um, sense of having to justify um, one's interest in and, and also scholarly engagement with Tolkien. And um, as we sort of both identified, perhaps that era is, is coming to an end. So I suppose my, my final question here is where do you see um, Tolkien studies in a, I suppose, a scholarly sense going from here? Um you know, perhaps integrating um, English studies more generally, um, uh, sort of broadening beyond the medieval. I, I don't know um, if, if you have any ideas specifically about that, but, yeah, I'd just be interested to hear. I think one one thing, uh, one direction that uh, all, mm. all, sorts of, all sorts of classical fields of, uh, of inquiry are going, not just talking yeah. You know, even the very classics themselves is um, yeah. is, is to see the uh, the embeddedness of that in twentieth twenty first century pop culture, and that's what mm. happens is happening with the films, right? With the Jackson, Lord of the Rings films, the Hobbit films. Now, the uh, it's going to happen again with the Amazon uh, series. Uh, mm. Um, the fan uh, activities, fan fiction, um, games, things like that. I was very happy to see the, 
and the chapter on uh, talking and gaming in the Black Rock Companion, for example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that opens it up towards um, towards the fan base, right? Towards yeah, yeah. people who not only who not even necessarily read the Tolkien, right, but are engaged with him with his work because they saw the movie or because they are playing the role playing game, the role playing game, and so on. So one direction I think uh, is. Uh, is that to, to look at Tolkien's embeddedness in popular culture and how it works, uh, how it, what what do people get out uh, from his work that are not literary uh, readings, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Another another um, another direction is um, I, I guess the the more theoretical uh, readings of Tolkien, which um, which are becoming more and more numerous and uh, which I very very much welcome because uh, yeah because I have a background in theory and uh, I find yeah, that yeah. Uh, but also <laughs> and, uh, and that is uh, in, in a sort of contrast to that uh, there is I think um, an interest a more uh, sustained interest in Tolkien's classical connections right at least two different books came out uh, recently that explored Tolkien's um, Classical connections, and I and I do see further things down that road. So uh, there could be uh, there could be more work done on, on that uh, direction too. But that's also partly because of my background in classics that I'm interested in. So <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would yeah. say the, uh, these three directions are pretty. Um, pretty clear cut at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I definitely see that as well, uh, especially the classical or the classic um, connections, which of course um, interests me because I sort of, I, I teach some of, some of that material. So <laughs> it'd be nice to, yeah. nice to be able to, um, to be, to, to be able to link that uh, occasionally with, um, with, with my interest in Tolkien. Um, I suppose I know that I, I said that was a final question, but that, that does raise just one, <laughs> another one, um, which is um, I, I, I'm not sure if you're much of a Twitter aficionado at all, but, but um, no, no. <laughs> um, or any of those social media kind of, uh, kind of sites. But um, talking about sort of theoretical readings of, of Tolkien, um, there's been a, there's been a, a Profusion, I guess, of um, at least as far as I can tell, um, anecdotally, of um, readings of Tolkien that emphasise, particularly with regards to the Lord of the Rings, but also in the Silmarillion, um, that emphasise sort of queer readings and things like that. Um, I don't know if you have you would you would have any opinions on on this, but um, it's been I, I a really read, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I read you Tolkien and the Authority. Uh, the um, yeah 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 the fish script that uh, that was uh, honoring Jane Chance's work and uh, yes collected. yes uh, and that, that I found that hugely entertaining very entertaining right. in a very good sense I mean I'm yeah. not not at all belittling it it uh, it was mm. most of it was was fascinating and very interesting um, work and I got a lot of um, pointers from there. Uh, that mm. I like to follow up and see whether I can 
whether I can integrate them. So yes, uh, I I consider that um, as part of the theoretical direction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, bringing concepts like race and, jo- and, and gender and um, and all of uh, all of that uh, discourse uh, to Tolkien, and that's uh, mm-hmm. that's something that's something that's needed because uh, Tolkien, in certain circles, has this reputation of being uh, being hopelessly conservative, right? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, and even racist, and um, and that's um, especially in today's cultural climate. That is. Uh, it's important to uh, to address those questions, to address those, yeah. those feelings, right? I'm not saying we need to apologize for Tolkien being what, what he was and uh, being the, uh, the in partly the product of his uh, of his own um, historical uh, context, right? But I am pretty certain that Tolkien was not uh, racist. I'm pretty certain that uh, he was not. Uh, he was not uh, exclusive in the sense that, uh, in the sense that he was not excluding uh, minorities or, uh, you know, basically other, uh, mm-hmm. other um, discourses from uh, from even his writing, and that's um, that book, Talking and Authority, and a, and a lot of other work that is done in the same way, um, helps I think to see how. Um, how it's relevant today, right? Yeah. How it's, yeah. Uh, it's something to counter the classification, uh, something to show uh, how uh, how well you need to read Tolkien if you if you are interested in all of this. You can't yeah, yeah. you can't just say, well, it's a classic, yeah, or we don't <laughs> need to read it anymore. Well, yeah, yeah, you can, and and <laughs> yeah, and I just want to say that. Um, you know, just as Jane Austen is a classic, but she continues to be read, uh, so Tolkien also deserves to be read today. And um, perhaps also considered a classic, you know, in the same way. Um, perhaps Mary Shelley is a, is a, is a better is a better comparative mm-hmm. sort of example. Um, you know, I don't know how widely she's read, but <laughs> I mean, I read I read Frankenstein in university. Um, <laughs> perhaps that doesn't count, but um, but yeah, no, I I agree. And you know, in in terms of what people get out of it, I mean, my impression is that um, uh, people are you know creative in their their readings, and um, uh, you know, I, I did see something from Demetra Femi the other day, which remarked that. Um, you know, in, in regards to the uh, Tolkien Society conference that you mentioned on Tolkien and diversity, there have been some negative responses. And, um, you know, I think that, that there are some readers of Tolkien who want him to say very particular things oh, and sure. who, yeah, and, and I think that um, needs to be challenged. I mean, not only for sort of base political reasons, but also just in the interest of... Um, uh, in the, in the interest of expanding our conception and understanding of the literature itself and perhaps um, not 
I don't know. Perhaps perhaps we, we, we ought not to, for example, read the letters of Tolkien as, as published anyway and place so much authority in the words that, in, in their words, um, you know, perhaps we ought to, um, you know, as, as some scholars, quite frankly, do, <laughs> and, and perhaps we ought to, um, you know, we, we ought to allow that readers will have will have various responses, which are not always in, in which are not always congruous with what even Tolkien himself might have thought. Um, yeah, well, that's the. That's the common 20th century or later 20th century uh, attitude mm. to the to the author himself yeah. or herself um, as um, you know not privileged in uh, yeah in many senses yeah I yeah mean, it's it's very very good that we have the letters but um, you know they are not not sacred writings um, <laughs> yeah yeah talking um, interpreting his own work is is, is, is still just is still a, an interpreter of his work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and the you know the, the advantage that he has is that he has um, that he has insight into the creative process that we don't that we don't. In fact, that's one of the most important and interesting things that the letters uh, inform us about the, the creative. Yeah, process. yeah, yeah. But it's not the ultimate uh, reading. Yeah, and to uh, to once again. Um, cite the wisdom of Michael Drought. Um, you know, the, 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 the letters are sometimes post hoc rationalizations um, that need not always be considered, uh, as you say, kind of, you know, holy writ. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's exactly what they are, interpretations. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's good to keep in mind. Um, yeah, well, look, you know, you've been incredibly generous with your time so um <laughs> yeah it's, it's been a fascinating discussion um it's just i i feel like in some ways um we're on the brink of this abyss um unknown abyss uh you know we're going to have this amazon show which is mm-hmm. of course looking at the second age which is i i i still struggle to comprehend or to, or to sort of consider how they will actually <laughs> you know, generate oh, a, a sort of, yeah, yeah, um, a show out of that, uh, and how people will sort of respond to that um, will be fascinating, um, and how people are going to read Tolkien in light of this show, you know, in the next ten, twenty years is going to be very interesting. <laughs> um, that that remains to be seen. So you know, we'll we'll see how all that. Um, transpires over the next five years as, as that show is released but no doubt whatever happens it will you know bring people back to the you know back to discussions about Tolkien and his place in literature um, which will be uh, again you know fascinating so I, I guess just to, to finish off um, is, is there anything finally that 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 you you know that you would like to to say about your own work or about um, about Tolkien in general I suppose or about yeah, no, that's going forward. I pretty much said everything that I, um, mm. I considered important. How 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 it's um, how it's important to look at the whole corpus of Tolkien's work mm. and not just yeah. the text and not even just the Silmarillion. How uh, I think the, um, the metafictional uh, 
devices that, that make it into a network of, uh, mm. <clears throat> of related texts and authorial positions and authorial actions and audience positions, how, how I consider that um, a very important thing, how I consider the, uh, the popular cultural embeddedness, uh, something that we, that we definitely need to look at and, uh, and evaluate. Those are, the, those are my concerns, mm. really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's that's come across um, really nicely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, um, for those interested, for those listening who are interested, um, there are many, uh, many interesting papers that, that uh, Gergay has, has written, and um, I will provide links to those um, in the show notes. So especially those which, of course, we've, we've discussed. Um, so... Look again. Thanks for coming on, and uh, you know I thought it was fascinating. And um, there's so much more to discuss, of course. But um, <laughs> you know we could we could go for hours. But um, yeah, that's right. But we'll leave it there for now. We'll see how the next few years you know roll out in light of in light of all the things that are happening, which, as you say, are very interesting and exciting in the scholarly world and in the fan world, and obviously the adaptations and things. So. So thank you again for coming on. And, okay. um, you're, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a great discussion.